The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, as we continue uh, our study through the Gospel of John. We read, beginning of verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. Now, out of all of Jesus' miracles. This is probably one of the most well-known. Um, even many non-Christians know about the fact that Jesus turned water into wine. And, uh, you know, when we think about the story, at first it might seem like a rather a trivial uh, miracle. Um, you know, there were people dying all around Israel at this time because of illness. Uh, there was violence and unrest. There was famine in certain parts of the world. And we might think, you know, well, Jesus, what did he do first? Instead of a, going after all of those problems throughout the world and throughout Israel, well, first thing he did when he started his public ministry was he made sure that a party, you know, didn't stop and kept going by turning water into wine. It's a good question to ask. What's, what's going on here? Right? Uh, there has to be something more to it than than just Jesus wanting to make sure that a feast would be able to continue. And so, if we look closely at our text, we will see that there is more. There is much more. As we consider our first point, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So we look at verse 11 of our text this morning. John tells us that this was the first of the signs that Jesus did. The word signs is an important word in John's gospel. Now, you and I know what signs are, right? They're all over our cities, signs on the freeway that tell us about upcoming destinations, signs that uh, warn us about things like upcoming speed bumps. Signs perform a, a useful and helpful function in our daily lives. They, they convey important information as they point beyond themselves to important things. Well, as Reformed Christians, we often speak about 
baptism and the Lord's Supper as signs, meaning that they serve to point us to something very important. They serve to point us to Christ. They are physical means that God uses to help us understand spiritual realities, namely Christ and all of his benefits. This is what we confess this morning during our confession of faith from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Well, John, very similarly, he records seven signs that Jesus did during his ministry that all point beyond themselves to something very important, something greater than the signs themselves. And so uh, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he purposely chose seven important things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, and he included them in his gospel. And he tells us why he chose these seven signs specifically. He tells us at the end of his gospel, chapter 20, beginning at verse 30, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these signs, they reveal Jesus' glory. See, they reveal the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. They are things that Jesus did that reveal ultimately that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And we might think about it in the same way that when Moses was sent by God before Pharaoh to demand that Pharaoh let Israel go. Remember, God performed many signs and wonders through Moses in order to authenticate Moses' message. But, you know, there was an important difference with Jesus. His signs and wonders didn't just authenticate his message, didn't just authenticate what he was saying. They actually revealed that he was the message incarnate, that he was the Messiah sent from God. And so these signs that John records authenticated Jesus' ministry by ultimately pointing past themselves to him. See, they revealed his glory as the Son of God. But John also says that they served an apologetic uh, purpose. They had a persuasive purpose behind them. They persuaded people to believe in Jesus in order that they might be saved. Notice again what John writes in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now we might say that John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is building a case, see, for why Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, John was one of the apostles. He walked with Jesus. He talked with him on a daily basis. He witnessed all of the things that Jesus did throughout his earthly ministry, things that John 
will say at the end of his gospel, you know, if I was to try to write everything down that Jesus said and did, he says, I suppose all the books in the world uh, couldn't contain the many wonderful things that Jesus did. But so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that you may have life in his name, I have written down these specific signs. I have chosen from among them in order that I might draw your attention to Christ. And so we actually see how this connects directly with our message this morning. Notice what John writes in our passage, going back to chapter 2, verse 11, after Jesus turned the water into wine. Notice the verse says, this was the first of Jesus' signs. Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. See there in chapter 2, verse 11, John directly identifies it as a sign. And then he says that through it, uh, Jesus manifested or, or displayed his glory. And what was the result? Well, we read at the end of verse 11 that his disciples believed in him. See, the sign served the very purpose that it was intended to, to reveal Christ's glory and to cause people to believe in him. See, this is where we learn, loved ones, the function of the sign. It served to point past itself to Christ himself, to direct people's attention to him. See, the point ultimately is not to draw our attention to the miracle, but it's to draw our attention to the one who performed it and, and to understand what it reveals ultimately about him. You might say that these signs are like windows that reveal different aspect of, aspects of Jesus' glory and different aspects of, of his power and his attributes. Right, his wisdom and his love and compassion. And every time we look through one of these windows, we see a different angle, a different understanding of who the Lord Jesus was. And so let's do that now this morning. Let's consider this sign in particular that Jesus performed the wedding at Cana in order to learn what it reveals about Jesus and to pray that God will use it to draw us closer to our Savior. And if you're here this morning and, and you do not yet believe that Jesus is the Son of God, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will grant you spiritual understanding so that you too might believe and have life in his name. Well, we learn in this passage that uh, we are spiritually lifeless without Christ. The a second point in our outline, that without Christ, we remain spiritually dead in our sins. We read in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 of our passage, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, a woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now, the fact that uh, Jesus and his mother and his disciples were all invited to this wedding suggests that the wedding was probably for a close friend or a relative of the family. It's also possible that Mary had uh, some responsibility in helping organize the food and the drinks for the wedding. And, you know, such weddings in Jesus' day usually went on for days, sometimes up to a week. And this is probably why uh, Mary took it upon herself to ask Jesus for help when the wine ran out. Christian tradition and uh, the way that Jesus' family is spoken of in the New Testament reveals that Mary was probably a widow by this time, uh, that her husband Joseph had died. And since uh, Jesus is identified as a a carpenter in Mark chapter 6, he was probably at this time supporting her. Um, And so she, in this moment of, of desperation, in John chapter 2 in our passage this morning, she, she turned to him for help because she feared the embarrassment of running out of wine, especially if this would have been one of her responsibilities to help uh, in the preparation and the organization of this feast. Now, one theologian explains that uh, to run out of food and wine during a wedding would have been very embarrassing in that culture, especially for the groom, whose responsibility it would have been to pay for the celebration. This is actually why uh, when the master of the feast complimented the quality of the wine, uh, we see that he addressed the bridegroom. He talked to the groom because he knew that it was the groom's responsibility to pay for the wine, and he said, ultimately, hey, you... You must have paid quite a bit of money for this wine because it's fantastic. Well, it would have been shameful if there would not have been enough food and drink for a first century wedding such as this. And there is even evidence that the groom could be sued by the family of the bride if something like this happened, right? Because it ultimately exposed the family to... uh, a lot of shame in that culture. Imagine starting off your marriage that way, being sued by your in-laws, right? It's not a good sign. Now, the way that Jesus replied to Mary once she asked him for help uh, might seem rude at first. What do we make of how he speaks to her? Well, we know that Mary had most likely come to depend upon Jesus. As we said, perhaps her financial support And she assumed that Jesus would help her in this situation as he had usually helped her. You know, there's actually no hint in the text that Mary was expecting Jesus to perform a miracle, as though uh, Jesus had been doing miracles at home all of the time, and so Mary now wanted him to perform one in front of her friends. There's no indication that that was the case. Uh, But Jesus had been supporting the household, and so Mary mistakenly assumed that Jesus would continue to do what he usually did. Jesus' answer to her indicates that as difficult as it would be for her, Mary needed to realize at this point that Jesus had begun his public ministry and that things were going to be different. Um, Things would not be as they were before 
even in their household. Remember, Mary had seen many miracles surrounding Jesus' birth, but you know, every indication is that after uh, Jesus was born, he had a relatively normal childhood as he grew in wisdom and stature. But Jesus indicates to her that now things were changing, that Mary had to understand the change. Now, this is similar to that point in the Gospel of Mark um, when Mary and, and uh, Jesus' brothers came to speak with him. And this was after he had begun his public ministry. And, and someone told Jesus that his mother and his brothers were outside and they wanted to talk to him. And do you remember what Jesus replied? He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, Mary and his whole family needed to realize the nature of his mission. They needed to see Jesus now as Israel's Messiah who would save them from their sins. And so after Jesus began his public ministry, the relationship between him and his mother changed. And, and the key to Jesus' answer to Mary can be seen when he said to her, my hour has not yet come. Now when Jesus speaks of his hour or his time in the Gospels, he's referring to his death and his resurrection and, and his ascension. He's referring to his death on the cross and, and the exaltation that takes place after he is raised. We will see him referring to this hour that he speaks of throughout the Gospel of John as we continue in our study. And interestingly, in John chapter 17, verse 1, right before he was betrayed by Judas, uh, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Do you see the difference in our text early on? John chapter 2, Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 17, verse 1, after Jesus you know, completed three years of his earthly ministry, when he knew that he would be betrayed into the hands of men, he then prayed to the Father and said, my hour has come. The time is going to be fulfilled. It's time for me to suffer on the cross for the sins of my people, to die and to be raised and then to ascend into glory. Well, Mary in our text rightly responded in faith. She said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We read in verses 6 through 7 what he told them. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. Now this water, it was used for uh, the ritual washing of utensils and, and hands before uh, the Jews would sit down to eat, um, especially at feasts such as this wedding. The Judaism during Jesus' day was obsessed uh, with ceremonial cleanliness and, and washing. We actually read a little bit about this from uh, Mark chapter 7. And 
there was, you know, we also read about the problem that Jesus identified with these ritual washings and with these uh, cleanliness laws that Judaism had uh, added to the faith over time. And the problem that Jesus identified was that so many in Judaism were uh, focused on this outward cleanliness, and so they missed the importance of a heart and a mind that was devoted to the Lord. He was identifying the fact that without faith in him, no matter how much a person washes, they can ultimately never wash away sin. So we need God to transform our hearts by his Holy Spirit, and we need to be washed in the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be forgiven. This is what Jesus points out in Mark chapter 7. I want to read verses 1 through 8 again so we understand how this fits into the context of our passage this morning. Mark chapter 7, beginning of verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then Mark gives us a very helpful social commentary here on the religious views of the Pharisees. Beginning of verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And then Jesus, again, identified the problem. He says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, for as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus saying you are so focused on outward religiosity that you are missing the only thing that can make you right before God, and that, we're, that is the uh, regeneration that only the Lord can provide by the power of his Holy Spirit and then the cleansing blood of Christ applied by faith. What Jesus is pointing out ultimately about these water jars that were at the wedding, is that they uh, represented the old covenant economy. And Jesus, by uh, transforming this water into wine, was demonstrating that the old covenant was ending because he, the promised Messiah, had finally come. And this is where, loved ones, we see our third point. We see the abundant life that we can find in Christ alone. Because in the Bible, uh, wine is a symbol of joy and gladness. Uh, wine is represented and, and is described in the Bible as one of God, God's good gifts to us. Psalm 104 verse 15 says that God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. And so if your conscience permits, drinking wine is not sinful. In fact, J.C. Ryle pointed out that if our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle 
in order to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible to prove that drinking wine is sinful. And we know that the Bible does teach that to abuse it is a sin, like drunkenness is a sin, but we go too far in saying that drinking wine, even in moderation, is uh, sinful. Depending on your conscience and and your family history and, and your health, all these might be factors that cause you to want to abstain from alcohol. That is a wisdom issue that you can discern through prayer and perhaps through talking to other Christians. But ultimately what we see in the Bible is that wine is one of God's good gifts to us when it is used in moderation. And and the Bible also says that it's not just one of God's good gifts to us, but it represents the messianic age and the joy that is ushered in by the Messiah. Wine often represents the time that the Messiah would come and usher in the new covenant. And so if we think about the water pots at this wedding, I want us to remember that they were intended for Jewish purification. Remember, they, they represented the old covenant economy with its uh, typical preparatory and earthly representations and rituals, right? those ceremonies that were so closely linked with the old covenant. But now Jesus had begun his ministry, and the old covenant era was ending, and the new covenant era was being ushered in. And when the Old Testament prophets spoke about this time of transition, transition from the old covenant to the new covenant age that the Messiah would bring, the Old Testament prophets often spoke about it in terms of abundant wine that would be overflowing. One example we find is at Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, as Amos writes about how God's people can look forward to the fulfillment of the promises of God in the new covenant, and that this would be represented by uh, an abundance of wine. We read in Amos beginning in chapter 9, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Did you see the picture that Amos was painting as he was communicating the blessings of God that would come about in the new covenant age. The mountains, he says, shall drip of sweet wine, and and the hills shall flow with it. See, the passage describes the overflowing abundance of God's blessings upon his people through the Messiah. Blessings that are represented in an abundance of wine. Ultimately, what we see is the picture being painted of the new covenant, which is a time of rich fulfillment of all the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And and we see this very clearly depicted also in our passage this morning. We see the fulfillment. We see it first in the quantity of wine that Jesus 
produced through this miracle. The sheer amount of wine that Jesus produced. How much wine did Jesus make? We know that there was those six stone jars with 20 to 30 gallons of water. That water was turned into wine, so a total of up to 120 to perhaps even up to 180 gallons. That's over 1,000 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine, right? Especially for a wedding that was probably not very big. Uh, what Jesus was demonstrating was the fulfillment of passages such as Amos and several passages from the prophet Isaiah. Right? The new covenant age and the abundance of blessings that would come through the Messiah. We see the qu- it in the quantity of wine, but we also see it in the quality of the wine that Jesus produced. We read in verses 9 through 10, this objective witness that was present at the wedding, the master of ceremonies. We read that when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, these, these verses point to the superiority of the new covenant. Alexander McLaren writes that uh, Jesus keeps the best till the last. His gifts become sweeter every day. No time can ruin them. Advancing years make them more precious and more necessary. The end is better in this course than the beginning. And when life is over and we pass into the heavens, the word will come to our lips with surprise and with thankfulness as we find how much better it all is than we had ever dreamed it should be. We shall say, you have kept the good wine until now. So we see that this sign that Jesus performed at the wedding at Cana revealed the inadequacy of the old covenant and the abundant joy and the abundant blessings that would come through Christ and in the new covenant. And loved ones, it also reveals that Christianity at its heart is a joyful religion, that our faith is a joyful faith. And the joy that we experience comes from knowing that we are forgiven, that we are washed and cleansed of sin, not because of any deeds that we have performed and not because of merely external washings, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished in our hearts by the regenerating power of his Holy Spirit and the cleansing blood that we have been washed in. So we have joy in our lives knowing that we are right with God, that we have been cleansed of sin One thing I love about the hymns that we sing during the Advent season is they point us to the joy of the new covenant age, the messianic age that came through Jesus' incarnation and through his accomplished work of obedience, the life that he lived and the death that he died for you and for me. The last hymn that we're going to sing this morning, our hymn of thanksgiving, is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And I want you, as we sing, just to listen to how it exudes joy. 
He speaks about the fact that he is the dear desire of every nation. He's the joy of every longing heart. It talks about the fact that he brings joy to those who long to see him. There is joy at the heart of our faith because we know that we have been made right with God. Beloved ones, joy also comes from the hope that we have of the future glory. And we will celebrate with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we will be with him in glory, when we will celebrate, the Bible speaks about a feast with rich food and well-aged wine. We know how joyful a wedding can be, don't we? Many of us have attended many weddings, and we know the, the joyful atmosphere and, and, the, and the happiness, uh, and especially the couple. Right? It's joyful because here is this couple as, as they are celebrating the fact that they now get to spend the rest of their lives together in each other's presence. There's joy. There's expectation. And loved ones, that is how we will feel on that last day. When we will see the bridegroom, when we will see the Lord Jesus, and the joy that we will experience and feel in knowing that we will get to spend eternity with him in his presence. It will be a very joyful, happy day for you and for me. We praise God for the hope that he has given us of that coming day. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the new abundant life that we have in Christ through his finished work on the cross. We thank you for the ways in which you pointed your church in the Old Testament through times and shadows to Christ and for how all those things have found their yes and amen in him. Grant us uh, not to waver from the faith. Lord, when we are tempted to look to our own righteousness and merit, forgive us, we pray, and direct us back to Christ who alone is the sum and substance of all of your promises. And now, Lord, as we uh, go back into the world, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might love and serve you. May the lips which have sung your praises this morning always speak the truth in love. May the ears that have heard your word be shut to what is evil. And may the feet that brought us to this house of prayer always walk in your ways. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.